Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in this congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. Well, good morning and welcome again. We are starting a new summer series that we have entitled, My Heart Cries Out. We're excited to be going through the Psalms, various Psalms throughout the summer. It'll take us through June, July, and August. And I love the theme because in so many ways, we each have so many things going on in our lives, what the Bible calls our hearts. And our hearts need expressiveness. They need an opportunity to express themselves, right? Our hearts want to cry out. Honest story, true story, right now my wife and I are doing a 21-day cleanse. Don't ever do that, right? Huge mistake. We're about halfway through it, and uh, my heart is crying out for a taco right now. I'll take any taco. TJ Taco would be the best right up here in Escondido. I'll even take Taco Bell at this point, but our heart is crying out for something, right? We are hungering for things. And this is a season maybe to recognize what's going on in your life, what's going on in your heart. What are the different hunger pains, what is your heart really crying out for? Our hearts cry out in our wandering, right? in our longing, in our desire to get out of town, in our desire for adventure, in our desire for a friendship, desire to be seen and known and loved. Our hearts cry out for beauty. This is why we love a walk on the beach or a getaway to the mountains. We are crying out for affection. We're crying out for somebody just to see me and say, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I have missed you. Right? There's all sorts of layers and reasons that our hearts cry out. But the Bible says that the true cry of our hearts is actually for more of God. I don't know how that strikes you, whether you're a Christian or not. You think about the diversity of things that you're hungering for, the things that you want. The Bible says that the heart of it all is a heart's cry for God. And where we express that is actually through prayer. And the Bible has a prayer book, and that prayer book is the book of Psalms, and it teaches us to pray. What the Psalms do is they give voice to the variety of the cries that you carry. See, the Bible actually does have something to say to the modern man or to the modern woman if we dare to crack it open and to look deeply in it. The book of Psalms is this place of expressiveness, of emotionality. Is that a word? Right? Emotion is coming out on the different Psalms. There's 150 of them. I'm thankful that it's the longest book of the Bible because it allows us to express all of this variety of experience. But what the Bible says is, when your heart is crying out, what it's actually looking for is God. And the way in which we express it is through prayer. Psalm 1, as we get into Psalm 1 today, Psalm 1 tells us that our hearts are never going to be truly satisfied with a passing glance at this God. Let me say that again. Your heart is so complex. You have all sorts of things that you love, want, and desire. But your heart, if it is wired for this God, it is never going to be satisfied with a short kind of glance over your shoulder, kind of an acknowledgement that he's there, a quick prayer, 
before a meal, as important as that is, or as you lay your head down at night, just kind of thinking of God for a moment. Your heart will not be tuned properly in that way, is what Psalm 1 says. Psalm 1 says that the cry of our hearts find their deepest answer in meditation on the law of God. Meditation was Christian before it's ever been taken into the secular spheres. Meditation on the Word of God, and we're going to break that down, which is like a deep, soulful consideration of who He is, what He said, what He has written, and where we think out every implication of God's Word for our life. That's what meditation is. I'm thinking out the implications of the fact that the God of the universe wrote a book for me that I get to read and then put it into action. And I will admit, I'll be the first one to admit, some of those books are confusing. I can't even pronounce them. But this is part of what it means to be in the church, that we rally around the word of God because the the God of the universe is speaking there. There's some sort of unique symbiotic relationship between the reality of God and his word. We don't worship the Bible, but the God that we worship, his story is told there. And so to allow our hearts to have full expressiveness and to have those heart pangs, heart hungers well-ordered, we have to meditate deeply on the Word of God, and it shapes what we do with our lives as well as who we're becoming in this life. So three things on this, four things today, on this theme of meditating on the Word of God. Number one, we're going to look at the promise that's captured in Psalm 1. Number two, the practice of it. And then number three and four, I'm going to kind of put together, right, the dilemma that you're going to face. All of us face dilemmas when we go, man, I want to walk for Jesus. I want to live for Him. There's always a dilemma. The Psalm will unpack it for us, and then the delight. Promise, practice, dilemma, and delight, all of it about meditating on God's Word. So let's go into point one. Look at verse one with me again. Verse one says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So now we have to ask a couple of questions. What does blessed really mean? What does the hashtag blessed life really look like? If you are on social media, if you ever put in the kind of the hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed life, you're going to get a lot of different versions and really a lot of different pictures of what blessing really looks like. But what is blessing according to the scripture? But an important question to ask is, how does the writer of Psalm 1 define blessing? Does he have anything particular, specific that he wants us to pull out as he says, blessed is the man who? What does blessing look like according to Psalm 1? Of course, the Psalm gives us a bunch of clues. It says, blessing looks like a life of fruitfulness and joy. And it looks like delight. It looks like a life with a lot of purpose. It looks like a life that's going in a direction that has meaning. A life that can face the inevitable difficulties, the hardship, the difficult seasons that come our way with poise and with a faith that will sustain it. That's what blessing looks like in Psalm 1. Read literally verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says, he is like a tree. This is the description of blessedness. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The reality is that 
every single one of us, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a skeptic, all of us, without exception, is looking for a life like that. We are looking for a blessed life. Where we may disagree, though, is how we're going to achieve it, where it comes from. Nobody's going to opt out. Hey, do you want a blessed life? You know what? I don't. I don't actually want a good life, a blessed life, a qualitative life. I think I'd like a subpar life. Have you ever met anybody who says, no, no blessing for me? The only question that we have to decide, though, is where do we get the blessing? Where does the blessed life come from? In what way is it offered? How can I tap into it? All sorts of competing definitions, and the Bible says there's only one way to actually achieve it, to actually live it out, one path to get you there. But let's talk about blessing for a moment. Let's talk about what it means to live in our city. What does it mean for a San Diegan to experience blessing? What does the blessed life look like? Now, as a Christian, you might say, Jesus, don't go there immediately, all right? I want you to think about the pictures and the storylines and the narratives that are being painted by the average San Diegan. You ask the average person in our city, what does the blessed life, the hashtag blessed life look like? What would they say? For anybody who's from where I'm originally from on the East Coast, they would say, live in San Diego. That's the blessed life. But for those of us who live in San Diego, how do you define it? Literally think about it for a moment. What comes to mind for you as you think about a life that's blessed? Think about it in terms of a day. What would a blessed day look like? And it might look like putting your phone away, maybe. Maybe going on a walk or a hike up Torrey Pines, maybe jumping in the surf, maybe going on a bike ride, maybe getting a great cup of coffee, a bird rock coffee. All sorts of images that come to mind, all sorts of offerings in our city so that you can have a blessed day, blessed week, blessed life. What comes to mind for you? Right, the accumulation of a certain amount of resource, a certain amount of money so that I can then have a comfortable life? We all have competing definitions of blessing. But for most of us in the West, the vision is dominated by accomplishment and accumulation. Think of those two words. Accomplishment and accumulation. These are the dominant values of the cultural stories that we are telling one another here in the West. See, accomplishment and accumulation equal the good life. If you can go to the best schools, then you're going to end up getting the best grades so that you can be your best you, and then you can get the right job, and then you can marry the right person, and then you can have an amazing life and then ultimately move to San Diego, right? This is what it means to consider the storylines of accomplishment and accumulation that are always coming, out at, coming at us. Our lives are stories, aren't they? I mean, your life is, has all these chapters and all these headings, and you look back at the, the life that you have lived, you think in terms of seasons, you think in terms of chapters, but you're living towards something. There's something that's going to guide that storyline and that narrative, and the reality is that's what makes social media so powerful. Whether you say, I don't have a lot of it, or I have a lot of it, I don't want much of it, or I'm always in it, for you to go on a deep scroll on Facebook or on Instagram is an experience of deep meditation, because what it's doing is, is it's shaping those storylines. You are viewing pictures of the good life. You are viewing pictures of what people consider blessed. All of them, of course, have pictures of a taco, feasting, right? All of these pictures of the life. And so you think to yourself, man, they seem so satisfied. 
They seem like they have it all together. It seems so stable and foundational. How could I even argue with the picture that they have posted? This is what it means for me to begin to believe the storyline through my eyes, through what I see, but then it inevitably goes deeply into my heart. And so we think they must feel full and happy and content. Tish Warren, to quote her again, she says, I love food in part because it's necessary for life and for the care of my body and the bodies of those I love and feed. But I also love food for metaphorical reasons. Food has so much to teach us about nourishment. And as a culture, listen to what she says, as a culture, we struggle with what it means to be not simply fed, but profoundly and holistically nourished. I think she's right. We struggle with what it means to not simply be fed, but holistically, profoundly, deeply, spiritually, physically, the whole person, deeply nourished, holistically fed. See, and a false promise of joy, a false promise of blessing, because it did not pan out the first time, is inevitably going to leave you more hungry, more yearning, more hopeful, more looking around for what's going to satisfy me, because now something has disappointed you. And so we're looking for something that's going to give me that blessing. So here clearly is the promise of Psalm 1. Listen, when the leading counsel in your life comes from the Word of God, And when you think carefully and critically about the redemptive storyline that Scripture is preaching and teaching, this thing that we call the gospel, and when you meditate on those truths and you move them from your head into your heart through a daily relationship with Jesus, and when you decide that not every single path leads in the same direction and not every option is equally valid, please look again with me at verse 1. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You hear the not. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, when a follower of Jesus decides that there are, in fact, rights and wrongs, that truth is not relative, that to know him and to know his word and to follow him is what is best, is what is good, is what is true, is where there's hope, is where there's this scandalous grace found. And when we begin to critique the secular storylines around joy and satisfaction through this regular and consistent meditation on the Word of God, which we're going to break down in a moment, working out all of the Bible's implications for your life, blessing is the promise. You cannot find it anywhere else. In season, and out of season. Fruitfulness comes through meditation on the Word of God. That's the promise. Number two, let's look at the practice of this. How does that actually work? In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, Luke 4, Jesus has been led out into the wilderness. He's been led there by the Holy Spirit for 40 days of prayer, 40 days of fasting. And Luke tells us that during those 40 days, Jesus ate nothing, and so the devil took the opportunity to attack him in his weakness, and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Famous story, you're probably familiar with it. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When he says that, what he is saying is that while our bodies need bread, so do our hearts. While our bodies need bread, so do our souls. 
in the way that physical survival demands that we are nourished, in a similar way, spiritual survival demands that you be nourished. This is what Jesus is saying. And when you look at verse 6, he says, the way of the wicked will perish. What he's saying is that it's actually spiritually fatal to be overly attracted to the world. It's actually spiritually fatal to be overly attracted to the world. How do I know if I've been overly attracted to the world? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Look at what you actually do. Because our hearts and the habits and the practices are shaped by what we love, by what we're overly attracted to. It's not that complicated. The things that I actually do with my time, with my money, with my body, with my hands, with my mouth, the things that I speak, the things that I look at, the habits, look at what you do. This is how you begin to know what you love, what you are attracted to or overly attracted to. See, but a desire is also shaped by what we decide to do. Don't miss that. A desire, your heart, is also shaped by the decision that you decide to do. This is why Psalm 1 in those first two verses says, Blessed is the man, then he goes on, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditation, it always begins with the mind, doesn't it? You have to think right thoughts. You have to think rightly about the gospel. You have to think rightly about our triune God. The Bible's going to expose you to him. I have to get thoughts into this thing. I have to begin to think rightly, but I can't stop there. I can't just intellectualize faith. I have to internalize it, and that's what meditation is. It's chewing the cud, as Charles Spurgeon said. It's kind of getting all the nutrients out of it. It's wanting it to go deeply into my life because God spoke it, and I want to live in light of it. I'm going to think with other people, not just independently, me and my journal, as important as a quiet time actually is, and I'll mention that in a moment, but I'm going to think out the implications for following Jesus with a group of people, and we're going to work this intellectualized thing called theology and doctrine and orthodoxy into our life, because if God spoke it, I want to live in light of it. I want to know his ways, because guess what? I want the blessed life, and it doesn't place me at the center. I places him at the center so that in season and out of season there is a fruitfulness that comes because he is with me and he's not going anywhere. But how does this actually happen? Let's put brass tacks down. How does it actually happen? What does meditation really look like? Let me just prime the pump by asking this. If you wanted to have a great marriage relationship, for those of you who are married and for those of you who would aspire to be married, how would you intend to have a vibrant, passionate, healthy marriage? What would you actually do? Let me talk to the men for a moment. Men, we have ambition for all sorts of things in our lives. We have ambition for that golf trip. We have ambition for getting out of town with some buddies. We have ambition for having coffee with a friend. We have ambition for that vacation we're saving up for. We have ambition for that new car. We have ambition for promotion at work. We have all sorts of plans for our work. What does it look like to have ambition for your marriage? How would you say, I want to have a vibrant, healthy marriage? What would you do? You start to set up rules, principles, traditions, 
things that would help you love deeply, listen well. You'd have a regular date night. You'd slow down if you're a quick speaker. All sorts of little things that you would decide so that my wife knows that she, that she is valued in this relationship. I would create a, a rule of life for our marriage because guess what? Great marriages don't happen randomly, do they? If you've ever seen a great marriage and you say, what's the secret to it? They're gonna go, there's no secret. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. We say sorry a whole bunch, but we have committed to it. We have a strategy for it. We've created rules. We've created culture in our marriage. It's as simple as that. We intentionally decide what it's going to look like for us to move this thing forward, and then we create the practices and the principles and the strategies that come from that value. See, and in the church, historically, this idea of a rule of life has been applied spiritually. Not just a rule for my marriage. How do I have a great marriage? See, a rule of life, the practice of meditation, has been given to Christians. We don't have to invent it so that we can know this God and have a blessed life. Let me quote for you from a church called Bridgetown Church where they explain the rule of life. They say this. A rule of life is a schedule instead of practices and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, And do what Jesus did to live to the full, John 10, in his kingdom and in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. While the the word rule may strike you as a strict or binding constraint, the Latin word we translate rule was originally the word for a trellis in a vineyard. In the same way that a vine needs a trellis to lift it off the ground so it can bear the maximum amount of fruit and keep free of predators and diseases, we need a rule as a kind of support structure to organize our life around abiding in the vine as Jesus imagined. Friends, here's the reality. Whether you realize it or not, your life already has a rule. You already have that going on in your life. And there are things that you are thinking about, meditating on, pulling in, letting get, give you structure, things that guide your values. This is not a debate whether or not this is going to happen in a human life, in a human soul. Only question is, what am I going to pull in? What's going to guide it? I've already got it, but am I leading, am I being led towards the good life, the blessed life, the the life of Psalm 1, or am I going kind of of helter-skelter? I got no clue. What do you like today? What do you like today? What's the next headline? I'm just going to go for whatever the picture says. See, as Christians, there's so much more stability, joy, and delight in saying, what's God's word say? He's so faithful to us. What has he told us about the lives we're to live? To quote them again, what we give our attention to is the person we become. Through what scientists call neuroplasticity and Paul calls the renewal of the mind from Romans 12, we have a say in the kind of thought life we wire into our brain. And as a result, the kind of people we are being formed into, whether it's formation through the truth of God or deformation through social media, news feeds, and entertainment cues. This is not to demonize social media. I'm on it. I'm a part of it, but I have to be careful. In what way is it shaping the thought life and the heart life of this man and my family? It's a neutral tool in so many ways, but in what way is it potentially, not neutrally, shaping your mind and your heart? See, these practices are what Psalm 1 would call meditation. Focusing 
the attention of our heart through various practices so that we begin to know and feel and experience the reality of a God who says, I've spoken, and that word is supposed to be implicated into every area of your life. What could that look like? There have been different kind of sets of rules and different things laid down, different practices. I'm going to list seven of them for you just as an example of what it looks like to truly meditate on the Word of God. Number one, some of these practices could look like this. Silence and solitude. Could you even hear Jesus speaking if he said something to you? Do we live in the space of silence? Are you comfortable with it? I'm not always comfortable with it. And this is why it takes practice. And what's my head going to say? What's my heart going to say? What am I going to think? What am I going to feel? I don't want to go there. I'm going to just kind of listen to a podcast quickly. I'm going to be driving. I'm going to, what would happen if that was the way I related to my wife? Honey, we have no time to actually have silence and have a good conversation. I know it's been a long day, but if you could just kind of catch me, maybe send me a voicemail. Listen, I'll check my text messages on the way to bed tonight. I'll see you in the morning. This is kind of how we treat God. What would happen to my earthly relationship? Well, what's going to happen to your relationship with God without silence? and listening for the voice of Jesus. Number two, Scripture. Scripture, as you're going to see in a moment as I wrap it up, Scripture's about Him. Opening the Word of God is not simply about morality and kind of checking off the list. It's about Him. I'm going to show you that. The Scripture is the thing that we have to meditate on. God said it. I believe it. I'm going to pull it into my life with others who will help cram it into the nooks and crannies of my soul. Number three, prayer. It's a conversation with Jesus through his spirit. He wants to have a conversation with you. Prayer changes things. Number four, fasting. Do I need anything else besides Jesus? When I remove something from my life, does it clarify where my appetite and where my hunger and my heart actually is? When I take something away, be it food or anything else, what does it show me? I will admit that the 21-day cleanse that I'm halfway through, hallelujah, is showing me some things about my appetites, what I desire, what I want, what I look for in my hunger. That's what fasting does. Simplicity. Oh, that's hard. Simplicity. Where do we put our money? What do we spend? Where do we, why do we spend? What does it look like to have a simple life? So much is about accumulation, right? an accomplishment. What does it look like to value simplicity? Number six, living in community. Relationships matter. We're in the middle of a together campaign. So much better together. Christianity makes sense together. This is how we go forward. Right? Deep community and deep friendship. And then number seven, Tapping into the rest that Jesus gives. Sabbath. What's it look like for you to celebrate rest amidst all of the busyness, all of the accumulation, all of the worry? Our family has started a very simple practice on Saturday night. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we forget. But for much of the pandemic, we would light a candle on Saturday night, and we would celebrate the fact that Jesus wants to give us rest. And we would just sit there, not complicated. And we would remember his faithfulness to us. And we would say thank you. And we just light the candle. And I'd tell a bit of the Exodus story where the Sabbath was initiated. And I would say to my kids, we, 
We get to rest because we're no longer slaves. That's all it is. Right? We get to rest because we're not slaves anymore. That's Sabbath. What has it become for you to consider what God wants for you? Right? The blessed life is for you. Those practices have been set up, this rule, so that we can meditate on the Word of God and put the gospel down deep. Let me take you to the last part. I said I'm going to put them together. Meditating on God's Word, the promise, the practice of it, and the dilemma and the delight. Here's the big dilemma of Psalm 1. No one can do it. No one can do it. Not me, not you, not the very best of us can pull this off. There's no one here who can live a Psalm 1 type of day. Up until this point, you may have been charged up, ready to go, new motivations, right? A new reservoir of hope saying, this, my life's going to be different. I'm going to move this thing forward. Thank you for the example of the practices. I'm going to move that forward. But how long do you anticipate that lasting before one night? Because you're supposed to meditate day and night before Netflix wins. Netflix is going to win in my life a lot. I mean, that's just the reality. Too many things coming at my life and my heart. How long do you anticipate adopting an alternative rule of life before your heart cries out again or gets terribly bored under the tyranny of what has now become a religious master? How long do you think that'll last? See, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Check. Yep, that's me. Day and night, all the time. Never sit in the seat of scoffers. Never think about anybody. uh, Never think about myself before everybody else. Check. Got that one down. I'm always meditating on the word of God. Check. Yep, I'm blessed. Life's coming my way. See, this is morality at best, and it's demoralizing at worst. This is, in some senses, joyless spirituality. Anyone who's tried to live a Psalm 1 type of day on their own has felt the tension. In fact, anybody who's a Christian and walks deeply with the Spirit of God says Psalm 1 type of day is a very difficult day to pull off. Our hearts really want to wander, and in time, they actually will. Here's how the Apostle Paul framed it in Romans 7.23. He says, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? But he's got an answer, doesn't he? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, Jesus is at the center of Psalm 1. Jesus is the blessed man. Jesus is, in fact, the one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He's the one who loved perfectly. He's the one who gave selflessly. He's the one who was in perfect communion with the Father. He's the one who meditated on the Word of God day and night, right? Isn't this what we learn about Jesus Christ? This is who He is. This is what He's done. He is the one who exhibited all the fruitful characteristics of Psalm 1. Jesus was the blessed one who, at the end of His life, got a crown of thorns rather than a crown of glory. How come? I mean, all of heaven should have erupted for his accomplishment. 33 perfect years, and you get crucified. Heaven should have been saying, you live the Psalm 1 kind of life. You are the blessed one. But that's not what happened. Jesus is the one who never once stood in the way of sinners, but he was the one who on the cross 
who stood in their place. Jesus is the one, the ultimate heavyweight. This is what holiness means. He is the heavyweight champion of the universe, and he gets blown away like chaff. And he did it in order to bring us healing. He did it in order to bring us the forgiveness of sin and welcome. He did it in order to bring us back into relationship. He did it so that he could accomplish the Psalm 1 kind of life, so that when we read it, we're not exasperated. We don't feel morally overwhelmed. We don't say, man, I'm going to fail when I leave here. Man, i got to be the perfect practicer of these things. Those seven things i got to bring into my life. i just got to do more and more and more and more. The gospel says Jesus has done it. Jesus is the blessed one. And he goes, and when you're connected to him, the blessing's already his. So, and when you're connected to him, now the blessing is actually yours. The Psalm 1 kind of life is yours because of your connection to Jesus. He has taken all the curses on the cross so that you can have all the blessings in this life. And so now when I read Psalm 1, I'm not thinking about what I have to do. I'm thinking about the blessing that's already mine because of Jesus, and that changes everything. I don't have to go accomplish Psalm 1 in order to be blessed. I'm going to try to accomplish Psalm 1 because I am blessed. Does that make sense? I don't have to accomplish the Psalm 1 kind of life or week or day or spirituality in order to be loved. I get to practice the way of Jesus because I already am loved. It changes everything. It changes everything. And now, friends, when we meditate on the Word of God, we actually find out that it's about the Word made flesh. Read Luke 24. All of it, when you open the Word of God and begin to meditate on it, it's about Jesus. It's not my words. His. Meditate on that long enough, deeply enough. Work out the implications of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the fact that He is the king of rest, the king of glory, the king who's strong, the king who's a lion, the king who's a lamb. You work that into you, the fabric of your soul, and the reality is it's going to change your life. It will change everything about your life. Meditate on it long enough, and you'll be transformed. Can I say amen? Amen. Let's believe it by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were the change agent You were the holy one, blown away. That doesn't make sense to us at all. It's the great scandal of the universe is what it is. But for so long, so many of us have assumed that the practice of meditating is about us. It's about doing. It's about accomplishing. Maybe it's not secularized, but it's been taken into the religious sphere where we're thinking about what we can do for God. Lord Jesus, help me to understand and help my friends to understand that the gospel is primary. It's about what Jesus has done to achieve the Psalm 1 kind of life. Blessed is the man. Blessed is Jesus Christ. And he has come to forgive us for all of our wandering, all of our malpractice, all the ways in which sin is dominant, all the ways in which I think about myself, the way in which I sit in the seat of scoffers. He sat there too. He took the shame, he took the blame. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me to not simply intellectualize that, but to internalize that. I'm gonna need some help because Netflix is calling my name. There are all sorts of distractions. 
money, power, all sorts of things coming at my heart. But I pray that we would practice the way of Jesus, that we would practice bringing the gospel more deeply in, that we would have honest conversations like the ones that we've had this week about anxiety and vulnerability, about real things going on in real lives. We pray that we would know that we don't have to be perfect because Jesus was blessed. And now we live out of that blessing. Thank you for grace. Will it scandalize us again? We pray it would. In Jesus' name, amen.